Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host Heather Ashley and today's case comes right out of the Mennonite community of Farmington, New Mexico. Small talk sucks so let's dive in. Twenty-seven-year-old Sasha Krause grew up in the Mennonite community in Texas. Her father was a minister, and she was extremely involved in the church. The Mennonite church is often confused with the Amish because they wear similar styles of clothing, but Mennonites tend to be more modern. They allow for certain technologies, and they allow for people to leave and come back as they please, and it's generally seen as a really welcoming and peaceful community. Sasha chose to become a Mennonite as an adult. It's not something you're born into, it's a choice that you make. She spoke various languages, and because of this, she wanted to serve a community that needed bilingual teachers. So, she moved to a Mennonite community in Farmington, New Mexico, where she taught Sunday school. On every other day, she volunteered at an elderly facility owned by a Mennonite publishing company on the compound and lived with other women who did the same thing. She was known for being kind and thoughtful, always level-headed, dependable, and responsible, and she worked hard and she loved her work. Her particular Mennonite community didn't allow for TV or internet, but they did allow electricity, vehicles, and flip phones that didn't have access to the internet. Sasha had a car and she had a phone that she used to talk with other people within the compound and, of course, to talk to her parents and six other siblings back in Texas. Around 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, January 18th of 2020 this year, after eating dinner with her roommates, Sasha made a phone call about heading over to the church to grab some books that she needed to teach her Sunday school class the next morning. She told her roommates where she was going and said that she'd be back soon, and they turned in early. At 1 a.m., though, her roommate woke up and noticed that Sasha's bedroom light was still on, which was odd because she was going to need to be up bright and early to teach that Sunday school class that morning. So she went in to check on her, but Sasha wasn't there. Her roommate checked outside and her car was still gone. Sasha had never come back from what should have been a quick run to the church. At this point, Sasha's roommate and another girl go out looking for her, and it didn't take long for them to spot her car. It was parked right at the church she said she was grabbing those Sunday school books from, just 150 yards from where they lived. I looked up the elderly home she volunteered for and was shocked to see how close it was to the church and where she lived. This entire compound is like a tiny little town in the middle of a desert, and it's not a place that you'd be if you weren't there on purpose. They walk over to her car to see if maybe she had fallen asleep in there, but she wasn't there. Sasha wasn't there, but her keys were. The basement light was still on in the church, which is where Sasha would have needed to go to get the books. But when they went to check, Sasha wasn't there either. And the money box at the church that they'd been storing money from from a recent calendar sale was missing. 
Her purse and wallet were left at the house, her car was left at the church, and her keys were left in the car. The only things unaccounted for were Sasha herself and her flip phone. At 3 a.m., after exhausting all efforts, someone who had joined in the search finally calls 911 and reports Sasha missing. Her parents, Bob and Laura, are notified and immediately travel from Texas to New Mexico to help look for their daughter. Initially, a lot of people assume that she had just run away from the Mennonite lifestyle, but it just didn't fit. This church isn't known for shunning people who leave, and they welcome them back anytime they choose to do so, so there's really no need to flee. She could have just left at any time. She also had a lot of non-Mennonite family, so it's not like she would have been left out in the cold with no love or support if she did leave the community. Her emails and diary were read to get an idea of her thoughts about her current life, and nothing pointed in the direction of wanting to run. No secret love affairs, no animosity, nothing. As deputies responded and started canvassing the area, a witness says that she saw a Chevy Suburban speeding away from the church sometime after Sasha was left seen, but the SUV winds up being accounted for. Law enforcement does start looking for information on a white Jeep compass that may have been seen in the area, though, and another member of the community remembers seeing a white van in the area around the time Sasha left her house and says that it started driving erratically when she got behind them. Police quickly try to ping Sasha's cell phone to no avail. It is off, and we all know that nothing good ever happens when a person goes missing and their cell phone is off. On January 20th, Town Hall Online reports that the Sheriff's Department says that any rumors flying around that Sasha may have witnessed a burglary in process may not be true and that they don't have any information that would support that theory. But I mean, a money box was stolen the night she disappeared and her car was found in the parking lot of that church that it was stolen from and everything but her cell phone was left behind in the car. And now her cell phone's off. And to add to the concern, her bank account hasn't been touched either. I'd say that interrupting a burglary in process and getting kidnapped isn't a far-fetched theory. And while there might not be any security footage that shows her being abducted, in a game of connect the dots, let's not discredit the direction of the arrows. A website called Menonet posted about Sasha's disappearance on January 19th, a little after 9.30 p.m. They're a forum where other Mennonites with internet access can connect with one another. On January 22nd, just three days after the post was made, a member claims that they were contacted by law enforcement to shut it down because too much information was being shared. So they did, and deleted a bunch of posts about her disappearance, including her initial missing persons report, before putting the post back up. A post with more information on what led police to be called in the first place was also removed from the Missing Sasha Kraus page on Facebook. That same day, the San Juan County Sheriff's Office makes their own Facebook post requesting that the only information shared on social media regarding Sasha's case should be from them. The same day, the San Juan County Sheriff's Office makes their own Facebook post requesting that the only information shared on social media regarding Sasha's case be from them. Sasha's family contacted Christian Aid Ministries, who they refer to as a search and rescue team, to come in and look for Sasha or anything that may lead to her. This team is an Amish and Mennonite missionary group, and I can't find anywhere where it says they have a ton of search and rescue experience, but hey, they do have a canine. Police and Christian Aid Ministries search the Mennonite community and the surrounding areas, and even with the canine, find nothing. 
On January 30th, the sheriff's department hammers down about social media again, saying that they're monitoring Facebook groups about her disappearance and ask again that people refrain from spreading rumors. I've never seen a department so focused on what's being said about a case online, and I can't tell whether they genuinely care about stopping potential rumors or if they're trying to shake things up to see if someone posts something online that only someone involved in Sasha's disappearance would know. They say they're continuing to search for her and investigate all possible scenarios. They've obtained search warrants, and they also mention working alongside federal partners in the investigation. Search warrants means there's probable cause. So what is the probable cause and who and what are these search warrants for? And why is the FBI involved if this is a small, low-key case of a missing 27-year-old woman out of Farmington, New Mexico? This case gets so little media coverage and the most odd efforts from law enforcement to keep things on the low that I've ever seen. It's a really strange combination and it's not going unnoticed by the people who've been trying to follow the case for updates. There isn't a fury for information, a fury of huge search efforts, or any fury of articles seeking updated information. It's just silence. I mean, even within the first few days, the family themselves had hired their own search and rescue team to come out. I can't understand for the life of me why Sasha's disappearance isn't causing more of a panic. Fast forward, and it's been two weeks with nothing. That's until an Amish-slash-Mennonite newspaper called The Budget does a tiny little article on her case, and I'm talking itty-bitty. It was right beside their word of the week. Let me read you some excerpts from this article. This week has been harder for us in many ways. Last week, there existed the hope of a speedy resolution. This week, we recognize the resolution may take some time. They mentioned that her parents, Bob and Laura, are still in Farmington searching for their daughter. And then it gets a little weird. As time passes, we continue to feel peace with not posting Sasha's information on the internet under missing, exploited, endangered, etc. We are not providing photos to anyone wishing to do so, although we did, of course, provide a picture to the sheriff's department for their posting two weeks ago. One individual who contacted us thought there was a gag order forbidding even the mention of Sasha's name. Actually, everyone may freely post most facts about Sasha. The things that may not be shared are the observations on current law enforcement movements or speculations. Do what? Translated, you can say Sasha's missing, but you cannot talk about where you see police or any information you've heard about the case. Yes, she's missing, but no, we don't plan on posting about her missing status anywhere or share any concern that she may be in danger. They give examples of some of the alleged speculations and start off with one that I've legitimately never heard of in researching this case. That people were saying another one of their employees was missing. Obviously, speculation. Then they list the idea that there's a credible threat to the members of their church and community as speculation. Saying there isn't a credible threat is speculation and a dangerous one at that. I'm getting the vibe that people don't want to talk about Sasha because they're worried it makes the community look bad and they'd rather have one missing member than have anyone concerned that there's something to be afraid of. But there is. They tell their readers that circulating these speculations do nothing to advance Sasha's case. But you know what else doesn't? Not talking about it. Add Farmington to the growing list of places I don't want to go missing from. 
Another two weeks pass, and the only new update is that there's a $50,000 reward up for any information about Sasha's disappearance that leads to her recovery, and that's a hefty reward. KRQE quotes the sheriff's department as saying, We feel as though somebody saw something, knows something, has heard something, and we're desperately asking the community that if any of those things are true, to please speak with our detective division. But two weeks pass with absolutely no more information. On February 22nd, more than a month after Sasha went missing and seemingly out of nowhere... Sasha's aunt posted that her niece had been found dead. Her post read, My precious, beautiful niece has been found. Our hearts are breaking, and I hardly know what to say, but we so appreciate everyone's prayers for our family during this time. This group posted the information before the sheriff's department did. In fact, her church made a post saying that details would be shared when they become available, all before a peep was made by law enforcement. Finally, San Juan Sheriff's Department posts an update that they were contacted by the Coconino County Sheriff's Office in Arizona, saying that a body of a female was found in their jurisdiction that matches the description of Sasha. She was found near Sunset Crater in a national forest between the Wallapai Reservation and the Hopi Reservation. Here's what really happened. The Coconino Sheriff's Department was actually contacted by the Wupaki Ranger Station on February 21st at 3.47 p.m. about a possible dead body found by someone camping in the area. According to 12 News, the camper was a woman who was collecting firewood when she found Sasha's body behind a bush with drag marks leading up to it. Sunset Crater is 272 miles east of Farmington, New Mexico, in the middle of Arizona. The San Juan County Sheriff's Department says the body will only be able to be identified through an autopsy, but Sasha was wearing a traditional Mennonite cape dress with gray and white stripes, and it would be incredibly unusual to find the body of a woman wearing that in the woods in Coconino. The department declined to answer any questions as to whether or not they think foul play is involved, but I think we can all agree that any play here is very clearly foul. Thankfully, the Coconino County Sheriff's Department doesn't seem to be skipping a beat, and they say in a complete 180 of the original pace of this investigation that they are seeking the public's help and ask that anyone who may have seen anything suspicious in the area to give them a call. I'm curious now if the San Juan Sheriff knew this case involved crossing state lines, and that was why the FBI was called in so early. Is it possible that one of the cars seen leaving the area when Sasha was taken have out-of-state plates? Keeping all of that in mind, and the fact that she was found in a national forest, this is now most definitely a federal case. On February 25th, the San Juan Sheriff's Department released a video confirming what we all knew, that the body found in Coconino is, in fact, 27-year-old Sasha Krause. She was identified through her fingerprints. They finally come out and say it, that she was kidnapped and that this is now a murder investigation. We go another whole month without hearing a word, not even a cause of death, when the San Juan County Sheriff does a surprise interview with Live PD. He says he wants to hear from anyone who saw anything peculiar in the four corners where Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico meet, or in the Coconino or Flagstaff area, 
And aside from wanting to know if they saw anything peculiar, they want to know if anyone might have seen Sasha. Sasha's obituary lists her date of death as January 18th, the day that she went missing. But does this mean they believe she was alive when she made it to Coconino? Either way, it sounds like they know a lot more about her travels to Coconino than they're letting on. So who's the guy with ties to the Mennonite community in Coconino, Arizona? Both the location where she was taken from and the location her body was found in are places you wouldn't be unless you knew the areas. So that should narrow down this search. If you thought you'd go another two weeks without hearing a peep about progress in this case, you'd be on the right track. This time, instead of two weeks, a month goes by without a single update on the case. But when the update comes, it is the mother load. On Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, less than two months ago, an arrest was made. 21-year-old Mark Daniel Gooch, an airman first class at Luke Air Force Base in Glendale, Arizona, was charged with first-degree murder, felony murder, kidnapping, and theft in relation to the kidnapping and murder of 27-year-old Sasha Krause. The first-degree murder charge means that it was premeditated, meaning he went to Farmington with the intent of murdering someone. Even though his warrant indicates that him and Sasha didn't have any connection to one another, News 12 confirms that there is video of Gooch in the Farmington area at the time Sasha went missing. The felony murder charge means that he committed the first-degree murder in the commission of a felony, which can include kidnapping, which we know he was also charged with. The theft charge was not for the money missing from the church. It was because they found Sasha's Mennonite head covering and her underwear in his possession. Both time periods, when she was taken on January 18th and February 17th, just a few days before Sasha was found, fall on long weekend holidays for the military, Martin Luther King Jr. Day and President's Day. Did he use these long weekends to abduct her and dump her body when he was on a holiday weekend and would have had the time to drive the seven hours to where she was taken from and the almost three hours from his base to where she was found? Gooch is held without bond, and other than the video of him in Flagstaff, we have no idea what led them to him. But the San Juan Sheriff says with confidence, I can assure you we have our man. Arizona is a death penalty state, and the sheriff is clear that he plans to seek the maximum penalty for Gooch. And yes, I plan to call him Gooch as frequently as possible. We still don't know Sasha's cause of death, but finally, U.S. News gives us one tiny detail, that she had injuries to her head that authorities believe led to her death, but her autopsy report has still yet to be released three months and an arrest later. A couple days after Gooch's arrest, the Mennonite community chatter starts and it does not stop. And like we initially thought her killer would, Gooch grew up in the Mennonite community. However, he, unlike Sasha, chose not to become a Mennonite once he reached adulthood. Knowing that he too was raised in the Mennonite church makes the fact that he took her head covering even more sinister. In the Mennonite community, it's believed that women can only speak to God and be heard when they're wearing this covering. They're worn as a protection from evil, and sometimes Mennonite women are even specifically taught that it will protect them from rape. He took that from her, knowing what it symbolized in their culture. 
Knowing he also took her underwear makes everything that much worse. On April 28th, we finally learn Sasha's cause of death. Missing Persons of America quotes the prosecutor on the case as saying, Gooch beat and then shot Sasha in the head. Gooch had a bond hearing on May 1st, and at the hearing, we learned more than I think any of us were prepared for. According to the Arizona Daily Sun, text messages from Gooch's phone revealed the boiling animosity that he had towards people of the Mennonite faith. In one example, his brother Jacob, who's a state trooper in Virginia, texted Gooch that he had pulled over a Mennonite, to which Gooch responded, Good, I hope you treat him like cuss word. We don't know which cuss word was said, but I think we can all safely assume it was shit. According to News 12, when asked, Jacob said Gooch had a grudge against the Mennonite community as a whole, but didn't know why, which I find hard to believe considering the other texts between them talking about pulling over Mennonites to give them tickets, coughing on them to give them coronavirus, and referring to them as cultists. We learn that Sasha was hit and shot in the back of the head execution style with her hands bound behind her back with duct tape and a hood pulled over her head. She was found face down in the dirt. It looks like law enforcement used a tower dump, which is something we've talked about in other cases like Thomas Brown's, where they find all the cell phones in the area at the time of a crime. When they were going through the list and crossing people off, one of the phones led to Gooch. Gooch and Sasha's cell phones stayed together until they got to Highway 160. I looked it up and Highway 160 is 63 miles away from where she was abducted. The chances of their phones randomly pinging together from her abduction site to Highway 160 in Arizona, the same state her body was found in, are slim to none. Gooch's phone then stayed in the area where her body was found for three hours on January 19th before he then drove back to his home on Luke Air Force Base where they found Sasha's head covering and underwear. In an interview with investigators, he said no one else had used or borrowed his car within this time frame. He also asked a friend to hold his gun for him once he got back. They're still waiting on DNA results to come back from underneath Sasha's fingernails and her neck. But this bond hearing was nothing short of spectacular, and he was very obviously denied any bond whatsoever. If you thought this case was done, and that you'd be waiting for the long, drown-out updates between hearings, you would be wrong. Gooch, who had no prior criminal history, apparently had it in his DNA. On Sunday, May 3rd, his brother Samuel Gooch was arrested, and it wasn't like a small piddly arrest. I'm talking he was arrested by the Coconino Sheriff's Department, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and the freaking ATF. That friend who was holding on to Mark's gun contacted the police about it and about Gooch's brother Samuel trying to convince him to destroy it. So authorities stepped in and did a little undercover song and dance. They pretended to be said friend and told Samuel that he could come pick up the gun. According to RSBM, law enforcement replaced the murder weapon with an almost identical one and waited while Samuel hopped on a plane from Wisconsin all the way to Phoenix, where Luke Air Force Base is located, and came to the home to pick it up. He was subsequently arrested. The second Gooch was charged with hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. 
The Coconino County Sheriff's Office says that the investigation into the murder of Sasha Krause is still ongoing and additional charges are pending. I don't think we're even close to seeing the end of the depravity and involvement in this case. And as any new information comes in, I will update you immediately. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Sasha's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the ins and outs of this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, check out our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/BigMadTrueCrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, all of your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just five dollars a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.